Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Mandek. I am your host for today's episode, Hawamide. And today we have joining us Safiya Edid, Hana Ali, and Bilan Hashi. This episode will be focused on the meaning of Heshod and Eb culture in the Somali community. We'll get to that conversation, though, a little bit later. But for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, Mandek is a podcast by a collective of young Somali academics from diverse fields who write about the Somali territories and the Somali diaspora. Our podcast features members of our collective, along with a wide variety of guests that speak on issues relating to Somalis across the globe. What is Adan Studies? It's a hashtag that snowballed into a global movement back in March 2015. We launched it as a way for Somalis to speak to larger questions of power, authority, and knowledge production about the Somali territories and how Somalis continue to be marginalized in academic and policy studies concerning them and the Horn of Africa more broadly. So each episode, Mentech does a roundup of our favorite Adan Studies moments during our podcast and feature the winners on our Hall of Fame as we like to affectionately call it, sometimes also the Hall of Shame. I'm so excited to bring this one to you, everybody. We'll be featuring the mayor of Minneapolis. His name is Jacob Frey, and he produced this Somali-speaking video that made so many of us cringe as we all listened along. He also posted this video speaking to his large Somali constituency right around the time Black Lives Matter protesters booed him for his refusal to abolish and defund the police. So in my opinion, while the language skills hurt our ears, the politics hurt our soul. Congratulations, Jacob Frey, mayor of Minneapolis. You have earned your spot in the Adan Studies Hall of Fame. Did any of you get a chance to listen to that video of him speaking in Somali? Unfortunately. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, I mean, it just went on and on. That's what really shocked me. It was like over a minute, a sentence or so, fine, but it just kept going and going and going. I, I almost <laughs> wonder if it was as bad as the um, the man from Finland or Sweden who sings along to Somali songs. Do you remember that guy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> better than I, but, I always, but, but I feel like that guy is, is, does it from a from a perspective of, of, of genuinely being interested in the music it's, and actually it's kind trying. Of wholesome. It is very wholesome. It's very wholesome. But I think with, with Jacob Frey as well, it's, it, it is, like, like Sophia said, it's impressive how long he goes on for, but also the level of confidence at which he does it. It's just amazing because you can see that look in his face at the end, like, yeah, I did that. Yes, I did. <laughs> I have mastered and decoded your language. You know, like there's just this. this I've unlocked. His eyes. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've unlocked, unlocked it. That's yes. It. And and what got me too is people being like, well done. I was like, well, what? We would be shamed in our communities for speaking like this. I mean, is it just that Somali, it's not a language that foreigners often learn that we're just so impressed when someone bothers to learn a little bit? I mean, none of us, I've always said this, whenever I see a white person speaking Somali, we didn't get a pat on the back, you know, for learning English. Yeah, the bar is just set unbelievably low, I think. The bar is in hell. And it just makes... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And with that, we'll wrap up Adan Studies for this episode. Uh, for contributions to the Adan Studies Roundup, tag us at at underscore Mandek or email us at mandekcollective at gmail.com. We are always here to feature new Adan Studies Roundup. 
All right, let's move on now to hashtag Somai excellence. Every episode we ask our guests to celebrate Somai excellence, which is not only limited to individuals, but Somai excellence is about celebrating the achievements of Somais around the world, on the continent and in the diaspora. So Hannah and Billen, who have you chosen to celebrate this week? I think uh, Hannah said that she has something. Yes, so this is low-key, incredibly selfish of me, but the work that we're doing at Cade um, is what I'd like to nominate. Um, so we have this project called Confined But Creative, um, which allows UK-based Somali creatives um, in UK and particularly in London, both kind of established and emerging during this pandemic and during particularly what was the time of the lockdown to create works of art inspired by the quarantine which then kind of leads up to an online festival and it's definitely been a labor of love that's taken a lot of people to come together and the amount of Somali creatives and the absolute excellence that's come out during this pandemic and how people have reacted through um, poems and songs and paintings has just been incredibly inspiring so it's really um to highlight the program that we're doing but also to highlight the incredible artists that have come out of it um i've been working with this um organization for three years now Cade, and this is the first time that we've seen so many somali guys submit so much work and it's just been really incredible to, to tap into the excellence that also comes out of um you know somali males who also are incredibly creative um, and visual as well. So very, very proud of all the artists that have taken part and still taking part in Confined But Creative. I've been watching some of the videos and I think it's great, the poems and everything. And, you know, thinking ahead also, you know, beyond this coronavirus moment that we're in, I really hope we see a lot more of these kind of online platforms, online festivals, because you, you can participate in ways that, you know, otherwise, if you're not in London, for example, you wouldn't be able to. Yeah. So well done, Kate. Let's get right into our discussion today. Uh, in early June, many of us watched as Somali and Oromo women came forward to detail their experiences of sexual assault. Muna Ahmed, in particular, sparked a community conversation when she shared uh, her public, she publicly shared her experiences of being sexually assaulted when she was a teenager, with more than 4,000 people retweeting and sharing their personal experiences as part of the Somali Me Too hashtag. She's since experienced death threats and doxing as a result of this. I think she's even deactivated at one point in time. Um, and today, we'd really like to speak to how this might reflect on the role of Hishad and Ab culture and how this plays out in the Somali community, the impact that it has on Somali women, and how social media is, as usual, being used as a place to break with cultural norms and to display resistance. So I'm curious for all of you who are here today, when we talk about things like Hishod or Ab culture in the Somali community, what does that mean? What are we referring to? Bilan, I know uh, you did a master's thesis on this topic, so I'm so curious for you to see um, this play out in kind of a public forum. Um, what what does that say about where we are? Yeah, I was I was uh, really surprised um, and happy actually to see that women are breaking their silence um, around this topic because for so long, um, a big part of the shog was to be silent, right? So it's it like I did my thesis on this, and um, there's a big 
element of sexuality in there. And women are considered to be not subjects of desire, but like objects. But at the same time, they're also responsible for any um, actions, even other people's actions um, that are perpetrated among uh, towards them. And so the fact that she chose not to be silent, I think is a starting point. I think that it is, as we can see, it's, it kind of snowballed and I hope there are more people who come out. I don't know if anybody uh, saw it, but right afterwards, there were a couple of YouTube videos of aunties sitting around having conversations about Hishud and Ab culture. And I was just so amazed at people's willingness to have these conversations in very public forums because YouTube links are by all means not private spaces uh, with lots of people tuning in to hear from them. I haven't seen seen those, but what I thought was really fascinating in general, like uh, Bill also pointed out, is the fact that this was happening so publicly that women were naming the violence, that women were naming their, like the, the people who did it, the perpetrators, which in very public ways, I mean, just tagging them in posts or saying their names. I think that was quite incredible. Um, so kind of this outpouring of, and Bill and there were more women. I mean, it was beyond Mona, it sort of inspired more and more Somali, Oromo, and others actually uh, to talk about what happened to them. And many of them quite boldly and bravely, I think also named uh, the men who, who did it to them. And in some cases, women. I did see at least one instance where the, the, the perpetrator was another woman. Um, so it was fascinating in that sense. I think, uh, like Bill pointed out, I mean, Ebb culture relies on a culture of silence and of women not talking about things that happened to them. And even the sense that talking about what happened to you itself is something that's considered shameful. Um, so I think it was a really important moment. Absolutely. I mean, I think the the kind of, I, I sat about, you know, I sat and thought about this and tried to think about the kind of, the meaning of the word hishod in particular and you know the weight that it carries and I'm not entirely sure if it's connected to the Arabic word of I think hishm or hishma which I think means a kind of uh, an act of sort of a shyness that's in relation to behaving in a in a certain way that the community kind of expects of you and when you think about the meaning then it makes perfect sense that that would come from this but but then I think about the word shyness and how, um, you know, it's the opposite of confidence. And I think that what's happened for the first time is that for so long, um, this online platform of social media and Twitter and kind of all these, you know, all the platforms have had a lot of confident trolls and a lot of confident negativity. And it's one of the first times that I've seen women being confident enough to speak up about what's happened to them and you know, like you mentioned, actually reveal the name of their perpetrator. And, and, and what you then find is that so many of, at least the examples that I've seen of people that have been accused, you know, these are not people that outwardly look like monsters. These are relatively young Somalis. Some of them are married men. Some of them, you know, have children. Some of them, as always, are people from the outside that look really nice and respectable and good and you know it's that typical boy who um you know is kind of 
Loki worshipped by his mom and it's kind of the apple of her eye and is doing the best he can but actually then you have these stories of women saying no this is what he did to me this is what they did to me and that I think has been an eye-opener of so many times we've seen in different communities this idea that perpetrators don't necessarily look like monsters they look like regular people which is what makes it so much worse um, and they have wives and they have children and they have girlfriends and they have you know things that they're doing and it just makes it that much more real to know that um, you know the situation that these these women found themselves in again is is kind of created by and and kept down and kind of encouraged the silence is encouraged by this idea that these men are quote-unquote respectable men which implies that a nobody's going to believe you and b that no way he would have done this and all of that has been really kind of powerful to see play out online. Yeah, I want to kind of go back to Hannah, you made a really interesting point about terminology, and maybe we can sort of unpack the terms and kind of think through what we mean by Hishod, what we mean by Eb. Um, I do think it's related to the Arabic term, um, Hannah, like Hishod is kind of a sense of shyness, um, a sense of modesty. I think that was the definition that Billen was working with. Billen can chime in in her, her work. Um, Eb then being something related to shame or something that's shameful. Uh, so maybe we can think a little bit about the terms as well and how they're gendered in particular ways. Because, you know, Heshad is interesting because I see it used in different ways. On one hand, it's something that's used like a monocolor, like for women to be something that's considered to be a positive attribute. She's shy, she's modest, um, but at the same time, it's weaponized, you know, you know, you know, you should not, you know, embarrass us. You should not be too loud. You shouldn't laugh too loud. You shouldn't smile, you know? So it's used also in a weaponized sense, in addition to being considered a positive attribute. Ebb, I think, can be much broader. Uh, where, you know, men and women are both capable of that in that sense. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you're right, Safiya. It is a cognate. So um, the Somali word hishrad is a cognate of the Arabic word hishma, and it's like this internalized sense of uh, modesty or shyness, as you said, but it, it's internalized. That's the part that I want to express. The fact that it can manifest in different ways such as dress or decorum is uh, separate from that. Um, and interestingly, in my research, I found out that it is very much gendered. Um, the way that Heshad is for women, uh, sharaf or um, like honor is for men. And so both of those things are seen kind of like a positive affect um, and they've been normalized within the Somali culture. And when people transgress the boundaries of these, that's when they start getting into amp, which is this negative affect, this shame. I've always, I've also known Hishud to be around modesty. And what I find so interesting about the conversations around uh, Hishud and modesty is the, the group of Somali women it, it's speaking to. Um, and, you know, let me know if you disagree or agree with this. But for me, when I think about Hishud, it's really intended for an unmarried woman who hasn't yet had a child. Because the ways in which we think about older Somali women, they're the ones who do the policing around Hishud. They're not the ones that we look to. I, I don't know if I've ever seen um, one of like an older woman who's had a child and is married be told, you know, not right? 
So I, I'm, I'm so curious about, it seems to fit within that. And it, for me, because of that link, it does factor in really, sexuality is such a big piece of it. Like until you're married and therefore the property of a man, these are the ways in which you're, you're supposed to behave. Yeah, I think so my culture in general um, is more willing to discipline the young unmarried woman, right? Who's not tethered to a husband. Um, whereas for the married woman, like you point out, Hawa, you know, you're kind of afraid of also offending her husband, right? If you are insulting her, which it is an insult to, to say, right? That's something that's kind of infantilizing or um, particularly deployed, I think, against a young woman. And it's young women's bodies that are seen as more desirable, um, seen as in need of being covered up, in need of being more modest, whereas an older woman could somehow bypass a lot of those same gendered expectations. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I do think that it's something that's connected to that sense of youth that's connected to you know being unmarried and um like i said not having you know a child but also in my experience i find that hishod <laughs> never ends you know it's 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 everlasting and even you know you see people on social media uh, particularly there's a lot of um somali women um, who are married and who have children who are sort of coming up into that influencer role uh, particularly on on instagram and and you see that the, the the feedback or the backlash at times in which they also get this continuation of, you know, nahishod, you know, you really shouldn't be out there, um, you know, showing off kind of your beauty or, you know, over kind of showing your, your, your desirability because you are married. And so this idea that because you are married, actually your, the things that make you desirable should be limited to within the four walls of your house and it should be limited to your husband seeing you at your most kind of beautiful or desirable and of course connected to this idea that women you know look good for men rather than looking good for themselves a lot of social media influencers um women are there to influence other women so it's really a conversation that two women are having you know kind of looking at somebody's hairstyle looking at somebody's makeup there the way they, they furnish their home or tips they have for parenting hacks or whatever but there is still this element of nahishod um, by revealing too much um, of your beauty or your goodness or your um, desirability. Now that you are married, now that you are a mom, perhaps you shouldn't be dressed like that. So in a lot of ways, hishod also doesn't end at the time that you get married and have a child and think, right, okay, I'm done with this now. Nobody's going to judge me anymore. You raise a good point, Hannah, in that hishod, I think, is something that's in, internalized and perpetuated like throughout the entire life um, of, of one's life. Um, but to get back to what um, how and Safi are saying about young women, I definitely do agree that um, because sexuality in, is contained within marriage, um, married women are able to express their sexual agency in a different way than unmarried women. And so there's this constant policing that there is um, more for an unmarried woman than it is for a married woman. But you are right. There are instances where uh, women do get called out um, on behalf of um, whether it's the family of the husband or somebody that knows them, that it's kind of like you're now his property, you should be contained as well. But I think the onus is more on 
I mean, the emphasis is more on um, young women who are unmarried. And the threat is like, nobody will marry you, you will be spoiled, um, or any of these um, descriptions that women also, that they also get attributed to by dressing a certain way or acting a certain way that is considered um, unofficial or the like. So here's what I found so powerful about what was happening with the hashtag around Somali Me Too. Um, it was, Sophia alluded to it earlier, so it was the naming of the young men, but it was also the, what it did for me was very clearly demonstrate that Somali young men and Somali young women have, there are very different rules around how they can express their sexuality. And to have a young woman say in such a public forum that this is unacceptable and this isn't okay, and here's the name of the person who did it, moved, and women, ha and Somali women actually have through Twitter, which is why I think we see so many doxing attempts and um, all of the negative comments and, and feedback that women are getting on social media, especially Somali women are getting on social media from Somali men. But all of a sudden, there was this, this uh, assumption around Somali women's place in the private world of family and home, staying quiet, um, comes into this very public forum, and everyone had to contend with these Somali men who they see as upstanding gentlemen were also perpetuators of, this worst kind, of the worst kind of violence. And it really made me think about how little is done to speak about young Somali men outside of um, the harm that's being committed to them against the state. It did something for me. Like we have these, achieve we do achievements all the time. We talk about Somali excellence, but we often, at least in Toronto or in Canada, we talk about Somali young men as being involved in some kind of violence, but we don't actually talk about them as perpetuators of other kinds of violence. So there, there is something that happened that just um, put that into stark focus for me. Um, and really highlighted how much violence, um, verbal violence, you know, Somali women are experiencing on these social media platforms. Yeah, I felt the same way, Hawa. I mean, violence is just so complicated, right? We can't look at it from this one direction of the state, you know, against Somalis. And most of the time when we talk about it in that context, again, it's foregrounding kind of maleness, right? It's Somali men as victims of the state. But, you know, all of a sudden we were now having conversations about, I guess what we can call horizontal violence, kind of an intracommunal um, things that are happening between Somalis against other Somalis. Um, and also then foregrounding and suddenly uplifting Somali women's experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I found that one of the ways that a lot of people were trying to silence the women speaking was, again, kind of looking at it that way of, you know, our boys are already criminalized, which is very true, you know, but Scott Amel was then the, the, the policing that was taking place. You know, you don't want him to get in trouble. You don't want him to lose his job. But of course, you know, then that silences, again, the Somali woman and who is speaking her truth and talking about the violence and naming the experience and what happened to her. Um, so it was really interesting to see how all of that was taking place. But really thinking through this then as a moment of foregrounding Somali women's experiences and the violence that's inflicted on their bodies. Yeah, I think it's, you're so right. It's, it's been really eye-opening as well to really sit with the idea of how incredibly protected Somali men also are, um, particularly younger kind of Somali boys. They are very, very, very protected within this 
concept of, you know, you are a boy, you are valuable. I mean, we see it on social media all the time, especially, you know, on TikTok or Instagram and all these kind of um, comedians um, that do these kind of jokes about how the difference between how boys are raised and how girls are raised. But that, you know, there's a lot of humor in that. We find it funny, but it's one of those things that it's funny because it's true, right? And everybody can see that perpetrated within their own home of how boys are very much sort of like Alahoyo, you know, you know, he's kind of the beacon, the apple of the eye. And then for the girls, it's like, you know, you always have extra duties of things that you need to do. And so in this instance, um, the way in which, um, you know, Somali um, men or boys were protected in the sense of there's no way um, that this could have happened. Um, by by people on, on social media it was quite um, shocking um, to see. Um, there was one instance in particular, a, a, a famous, let's say, kind of <laughs> somewhat famous, um, I think is it Instagram or YouTube, I'm not quite sure, um, Somali guy who came out and did this video, I don't know if you guys saw it, in which he was saying, you know, all these men that are being accused, where's the evidence, show me the evidence, you know, even if it was my own daughter, who said that she had been, um, you know, attacked or raped, you know, I would ask her to show me evidence because I can't go and ruin some other guy's life and ruin his family's life based upon what she told me without any evidence. And that I found incredibly shocking. Um, and I think that, you know, he probably was one of the few people that were willing to say it on camera, but there are a lot of people who would believe that themselves and it's very telling for somebody to say that if it was his own daughter you know he wouldn't want to ruin the life of another Somali man unless she had proof and that the word of mouth and believing women and particularly believing your own family members and God believing your own daughter um, has so little value to him I think is very telling of where we are um, and you know how far we need to go amongst a huge amount of, of people in our community who would agree with him. You know, that makes me so frustrated. I hear that and I get so frustrated because it also identifies for me how far behind we are. And I think for folks who maybe didn't grow up in the Somali community, don't have a sense of what it's, what it's like, the, this idea that the policing is not um, an airy fairy tale, right? It's, it's constant. Did you see her walking down the street? I saw your daughter outside of this store at this time. Who are these friends that she's with? Um, why was she dressed like that? Um, uh, you know, Javier's uh, uh, talking to another Javier about what they think they've seen and carrying that talk over to another small circle. Like it's, it's almost relentless. And so when I think about the added level of people then sharing their experiences of sexual assault and how this, this conversation was public, but the small insidious ways in which people repeat and repeat and repeat uh, the conversations, the way people will, uh, you know, ignore you as you walk by, they'll whisper about you while you're standing in front of them. And I, I really think about the psychological toll it takes on the young women who are brave enough to say something and come forward because there is a kind of shunning that happens, right? We don't want to be seen with you. We don't want to be associated with you. And, and then to, and then to hear um, someone go on camera and say something so idiotic as bring me proof. How do you quantify psychological trauma? 
What kind of proof do you have to bring forward? Why is the burden of proof put on the young Somali woman who's finally, um, who finally has had a moment to say, this, this is the thing that's happened to me? It just, for me, I, I, really, I really think about the toll and the cost and the consequence for people in having to be outside of a community that's familiar to them to find some kind of healing. Absolutely. I agree with you, Hawa. You know, this is going back to my earlier point about how women are responsible for anything that happens to them. Um, it, it's just really interesting for me the way that Shod and its connection to Somali womanhood is such a big part of Somali culture. But like I said, the male equivalent of honor is kind of not, doesn't have that same salience. So instead of like holding these men accountable and saying like, where's the honor and like, how are you acting honorably, right? None of that, none of that comes up in, in the conversation. Um, honor doesn't even come up at all. Or it only comes up in the context of, you know, these women in making these allegations are actually dishonoring a man. I mean, that's the only context that you'll see it really, but no, not in terms of thinking about, okay, how was this man behaving, this young man? Was he being honorable in his behavior? Was he, you know, upholding a sense of kind of uh, respectable manhood or Somali masculinity or all of the wonderful aspects that may be attributed to that in a positive sense? How is he doing that and not upholding that um, in transgressing and uh, victimizing a woman. But of course, none of those things are happening. It's a very gender discourse, which we saw play out in real time over Twitter, also in the many threats that many of these young women received. I remember, um, like just to go back to Howe's point about surveillance, I think for Mona, I remember her saying that, and I was following her tweets so closely, people actually went to her mother's home. You know, people were calling her family saying, you know, Ananta, like, you need to do something about her. Like, she needs to stop talking. Um, in addition to actually very violent threats that she was receiving. But the community itself sort of coalesced around defending um, the man in this sense. Safia, just to go back to your point, do you think it's dishonoring or is it shaming? Because I, for me, it goes out of sharaf to, to ebb now when he has to defend himself? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I, I do think you're right that it becomes ebb in that context. Um, but I was thinking more in terms of, okay, what do these comments do in that um, we're trying to protect, you know, the community sees itself as trying to protect the reputation of a man, trying to protect uh, perhaps his livelihood, trying to protect and shield his family, from what's seen as a belligerent woman, you know, who has dared spoken, um, who has gone beyond, you know, the limits of hishod, who right? You know, she's talking, she's making allegations. So in that sense, I do think that one can say that it's seen as dishonoring as well. But also like Sharaftisa, she's damaging that as well. I think it can go hand in hand. And I, I think I see where, where you're trying to get to, Belen, is the, the woman is damaging his honor, but his honor hasn't been damaged by engaging in this way with women, right? So he has exactly. to defend himself, but exactly. he doesn't ever have to. His honor is, is only in question in terms of getting the woman to stop speaking, but never actually um, 
it's, it, it never actually gets touched. He can defend himself. And on top of that, I mean, there's been instances where sexual assault is actually seen as something that makes a man more manly. I remember the case in, was it Puntland, where there was a rape case and there was a lawyer and this clip went viral. And of course, many Somais were laughing at it, but the kind of misogynistic logic was very real. But the lawyer was saying, Ninkan, you know, wa playboy. He used the word playboy. You know, he doesn't need to rape anybody. He can get any woman he wants. You know, kind of implying that either he didn't do it or it was consensual. But again, of course, then acknowledging that, you know, that this guy is sexually active, right? Or that he can access women, which again, you know, in terms of this kind of Islamic or Somali cultural context, those things should have been ebb, but when it's in the context of a man doing it, right? There's nothing ebb about it. In fact, Wabu, he's a, he's a playboy. It's literally the word that he used, playboy. Um, he's more masculine, like he's, you know, he's like he's more manly as a result of accessing women in that way. So you see that as well. No, but I think it goes back to the, the notion that the woman is always a troublemaker. And that, you know, if trouble, let's say, if we're using that kind of vision, um, if trouble incurred in which there was um, what then is perceived as a misunderstanding between the woman and the man, right? And which she then perhaps later on decided that actually this wasn't what she wanted. Then the trouble would have stopped in that moment, but for her to then carry on and talk about it and you know, name and shame makes her the troublemaker. And it's the idea that women being a trouble, you know, a troublemaker is a lot more powerful and gets a lot more attention than the trouble that she's actually reporting. And that I find very, very deeply disturbing. This idea that, um, there was a lot of threads that I was closely following in which people were saying, you know, well, she shouldn't have been there. You know, she shouldn't have been at that party. She shouldn't have been with um, these two guys that, you know, she went to, um, you know, primary school with that she's known that she's since she was 10 years old. She shouldn't have been outside of the house at night. She shouldn't have been um, going to a place where alcohol is served. And it's always this idea of, well, she shouldn't have put herself in that situation. So therefore, it's not really, um, you know, things happen, it happened. And so after it happened, you know, you know, don't talk about it, get over it, deal with it, and get in line. So then it's, you know, she becomes a troublemaker by, by continuing to talk about it. And I think those are some of the, the deeper issues that we have, I think, such a long way to go as a community um, when we think about what that implies. I, I agree with what you're saying, Hannah. I mean, speaking from my own personal um, experience, I was raised in a way that I, the underlying rhetoric was men are dangerous. You know, they will harm you. So never be alone with them somewhere, even if you've known them. Um, if you go to a, a party or you go out with a bunch of people, you never accept um, like, you know, something to drink out of a cup. It has to be always in a bottle it has to be closed even something as simple as water um because you never know what can happen somebody can slip a mickey in you somebody can take advantage of you and just growing up with that fear that you are the one who's responsible for yourself uh for other people's actions and that you have to be always on guard also does a, is, is very damaging um 
for somebody, you know, whether they're in their adolescence or, you know, later teens. And also, if we think about the being on God, you know, that very much, yes, absolutely, I grew up in the same way. But can we also then talk about the people that we haven't been taught to be on God with, such as the Ma'alims and the Duxi and the Sheikhs and the, you know, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stories that came out. Um, around these sort of religious teachers and leaders that women were also accusing. And they are kind of the, if anything, the the men that fell through the cracks, you know, the the ones that we weren't prepared for protecting ourselves against. And so when these stories come out about the experiences that women have had um, with their ma'alims or in Duxi or, you know, that kind of scenario, that is incredibly disturbing. Um, And I'd love to get some of your opinions on that as well. I found that fascinating because in so many other ways, the Duxi can really be said to be a space of violence, right? For a lot of people, they experience violence for, you know, just regular actions for joking with their friends, for getting an ayah wrong, you know, getting beaten is something, and in many, in many cases, often, you know, very sadistic ways, you know, getting abused by the ma'alin. So it's not a huge leap to also think about how that violence can be particular for young girls, for young women. Um, and it's something that I think for many people knew, they knew that it was happening. Um, but it was, again, jarring to see it so commonplace and to see it named. Um, at the same time, there was also a case where, I mean, and kind of going back to your point, Hannah, about, you know, violence that you wouldn't assume or you wouldn't see so clearly and men that fall through the cracks. There was also the case in Somaliland that was also happening at the same time with a young girl who was raped while she was living in an orphanage. Um, and so this case is still ongoing, of course, but um, she was, you know, a young girl, I think about was it 13 or so, um, 14, very young, um, was found pregnant. Um, and of course, this abuse was happening in, again, an institution that you would think would be protecting her. Um, and this was happening all at the same time. But looking at this in an institutional way um, and looking at specifically the Duxi as a place of violence, I think, on one hand, it's something that's so understood. I mean, all Somalis know what happened to them at the hands of the Duxi teacher, the Ma'alin. But, you know, thinking about it then with this extra layer of gendered violence or sexual violence and what's happening to women and also young boys. That's something that, you know, curiously was absent, of course, from the public conversation. But young boys are also victims of some of these Ma'alimin. This idea of being a man of God as one that, you know, protects and shrouds men from any kind of accountability or responsibility, especially in the Somali community, is one that I see often. And I think we saw this too with some of these young men who were, um, the defense of them was like, oh, they read Quran regularly, they pray all five of their prayers. Uh, and I, all I could think was, you know, there are lots of men in our community who read Quran regularly, um, pray and lead prayers um, that all have also done some really atrocious things that we don't we don't want to speak out loud in in these public spaces, and I guess I'm curious for all of you as we think about wrapping up this conversation, why is it so important to have these conversations? What and what's the way? What's the m- movement forward? Like, how do we figure out 
as a community kind of what we need to do differently and next to shift the conversation? Um, I was saying definitely naming is powerful. Um, it legitimizes, I mean, even though it is legitimate in its own right, it legitimizes in, in the public eyes. Um, talking about these things do matter. Um, I think predominantly it will be younger people who are going to be pushing this um, because maybe we're further removed from this idea of like, you know, keeping silent. Um, I know in having these conversations with my, you know, my mother or my aunts, um, the automatic response is to blame the woman. Um, why was she there, as, as Hannah was saying, or, you know, this must be not true, or, you know, whatever the case might be. And so definitely talking about it will um, make a difference. And I think we need men as allies as well. I think men have to be the ones who um, step up and saying, yeah, you know, I know so-and-so who does this, this is wrong. You know, um, people should hold themselves accountable. So I definitely do think that social media does give us the um, the space to talk about these things. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very um, positive about, about it moving forward. I hope it's not something that, uh, you know, people forget about and then just go back to their old ways. Absolutely. And I think also when you think about, pro, you know, from legal perspective, how incredibly difficult it is to actually go from accusing somebody to going through the process of having them charged and having them jailed. It's very, very, very difficult. And, you know, I, I was reading statistics online on Twitter that it's just it's unbelievable to think how difficult it is for the average person's perpetrator to actually go to jail for the crimes, um, you know, for the sexual violence and the sort of psychological um, violence and harassments that they are being accused of. So I think one of the first things that we have to do as a community and particularly, um, you know, uh, like you said, Bilan, like I urge Somali men to believe Somali women. I think if when you think about how difficult it is for a woman who's accusing somebody for that person to actually get to the point where they are incarcerated for this hideous crime, the, the, the least that we can do is believe in Somali women and support Somali women and know that her story matters and what, what happened to her matters. And I think once you start from a place of creating a safe haven and creating a solidarity of I believe you, that I think is, is a good way to move forward to everything else that needs to happen. Yeah, and I mean, well said both of you, but I just also wanted to add, I mean, in addition to social media, kind of creating the space that enables these conversations, that makes all of these conversations possible, I also wanted to just also speak to the inheritance as well, because I know that Muna, um, mentioned when she started speaking about her abuse, she talked about, you know, a young Black woman who on social media spoke about her experience being sexually harassed um, somewhere in Florida. I believe she was at, she was a Black Lives Matter protester who was, uh, she went missing shortly after and was unfortunately found murdered. But it was her experience of telling and naming that experience 
um, that kind of emboldened Muna to tell her truth. And then it was, of course, Muna speaking that allowed other women to speak. Um, but, you know, all of this would not be happening if it wasn't for kind of this context that we're in today, Black Lives Matter, um, Say Her Name, Me Too, which of course was coined by a Black woman. Um, all of these things that are happening around us and kind of broadening the conversations around sexual assault against and also violence against Black people, Black women, all of these things have contributed to really, I think, change us in fundamental ways. All of us are here kind of coming of age, you know, in kind of this era of Black Lives Matter, of Me Too. Um, and that's shifted us in significant ways from the ways that our community has thought about, you know, Hishad and Ebb and violence. Um, so it's very much a generational shift, but also a cultural shift that we're living in that that allows us to have things like hashtag Somali Me Too. Yep, I completely agree. I think the particular moment that we're in makes it possible for people to speak in a different way and that those people who are speaking 100% need to be believed all of the time. Um, it's better to ask for, it's, it's better to believe the person who's been victimized and ask for forgiveness from the perpetrator uh, if they turn out not to be the perpetrator than it is to pretend as if uh, the person who's experienced the harm hasn't experienced anything at all. Um, and I also, I really have been paying close attention to the fact that lots of the young men um, who were whose names were shared are very young. And so I also think about what the responsibility is of the older Somali men within our community who were largely silent uh, to do some work with those young men around what sexual assault and consent culture and rape culture look like um, outside of what, what might be um, what, what might have been considered appropriate or shut off or whatever, um, but there needs to be some different kind of work done with these young people who are growing up in a different context, but still seem to be picking up these same cultural ideas of um, the disposability of kind of Somali women. So I, I want to just quickly say thank you to all of you for the, the conversation. This is really this has really been a learning opportunity for me. I'm not sure about the rest of you. And that is really all the time that we have today. So thank you to the guests for such an amazing conversation. For those of you who are still listening to us, uh, any future, for any future podcasts, feel free to email us at mandeccollective at gmail.com. You can tag us on Twitter at underscore mandec to send us your questions. And always, uh, if you want to get in touch and talk to us about future episode ideas, we're more than happy uh, to hear them out. Thanks, everybody, for joining today.